0: there's a great Martin Luther King quote around him wanting to stay maladjusted to the areas of society that are detrimental to humans. Like he does not want to become adjusted to racism or bigotry or violence.
1: Right. Right. Welcome to Insert Human. This is a show that is not for everyone. It's for seekers, people like you, hopefully, who are searching for solutions to your problems, the world's problems, and everything in between. The conversations to come are going to show you how finding the truth of our humanity is the magic key to solving pretty much anything. Between my monologues, my dialogues with brilliant guests, and your good questions, you're going to learn how to insert human into everything, and in doing so, realize a better life, and one day, a better world. Greetings to Insert human. Uh, I'm Chris Colbert. Uh, You're about to hear a slightly truncated interview with a dear friend of mine by the name of Sarah Siegel. Sarah is the CEO of an organization by the name of Affect Mental Health. It's an incubator for mental health startups. She and I met when I uh, was working at Harvard. She's a lovely, thoughtful, caring human being trying to help lots of other human beings. We all know that human beings are fallible And I am certainly fallible to the point of when uh, Sarah and I spoke, I accidentally didn't hit the record button all the way through until about 10 minutes into the interview. So you're going to miss the first part, but there's a solid 45 minutes after of our conversation, which is really about the failure of the mental health system in America uh, and also the opportunities uh, that we have as a society to make it right. So uh, here's my conversation with Sarah Siegel. Thanks for listening.
0: And then there's another that gets talked about less frequently, which is for some conditions, we have really great treatments. Like OCD, we have amazing treatments. Great. Borderline personality, there's some really good treatments for that. But anxiety, great treatments. But there are other things where the treatments just aren't very good. And we've been funding you know, basic science and neuroscience with the intention of understanding what's going on and how to fix things at a biochemical level. But we've, you know, in the last few decades really neglected the environment of the person. And so if you take an example of like someone whose heart has been broken, right? And they can't get out of bed and they don't want to eat and they look very depressed and they are depressed and they haven't changed their clothes in a month. And then they get a phone call from their girlfriend, their ex-girlfriend, saying that was the biggest mistake I made in my life. I love you. You're the one for me. We immediately snap out of it, throw on their clothes and brush their teeth and get ready to go see this person in a second. And so I don't use that example to, you know, make light of depression because that can be really serious for many people, very hard to climb out of. But I think it does illustrate this dynamic where you have what's happening biologically inside the person. but also what's happening in their environment, what's happening in their social connections, what's happening in their spiritual worlds. And my strong hunch as to why we've spent so much time and so much money on the hardcore lab science and had relatively few breakthroughs. There are a lot of people who'd want to challenge me on that or say, you know, you shouldn't say that out loud, Sarah, because then we get less funding. All of that's important. We should keep funding it. But we need to be funding more around what do we know works at the level of Humans, human relationships, community support, how people understand themselves, how they get the skills that they need to live their lives, to know how to live their lives, it's complicated. And to find whatever is a reason for them to stay alive and keep living.
1: I mean, it's funny, not funny, haha, but, but, and I think you know this, that the last two years of my life, I have increasingly been carrying one flag, and that flag is, is, is is all about the importance of, of bringing more of the truth of our humanity into every equation, whether the equation is one's life, one's relationships, one's startups, one's company, one's country, one's city, that I think the massive miss in a lot of, of what we do and how we do it is a, a sort of an embrace of our truth right. So it's it seems that seems similar to sort of what you're saying in in terms of the sort of the the methods, if you will, of mental health kind of not being considerate enough of that that truth. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah.
0: I think. I mean, the way I would summarize it is biological, psychological, social, and spiritual.
1: Right. Whole whole person. Right.
0: Yeah those elements might be different. But if one of them is off, if two of them are off, there's many ways to to address that. Right. Some of which are through, you know, our healthcare system and some of which are through what we intuitively know.
1: It's funny my uh, my son Emmett, again not funny, haha. Uh, my son Emmett who's 28 and has really been struggling lately in part due to COVID in part sort of the job thing, but but really ultimately just not feeling great about himself and we have had a couple of long conversations over the last week or so and one of the things actually he brought it up and I just reinforced it he he said you know I'm realizing that my ability to dig out of this hole that I'm in I need to find a circle of people friends whatever you want to call it who understand it and understand where I'm trying to get to. And, and I just thought it was so insightful of him to recognize that you can't, you can't do this stuff alone. You know, like my own journey was very much a journey of tapping into friends, sh- therapists, shaman, you know, you, you, you need, it, it takes a village to sort of find your way to a different village, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, so t- t- tell me more about effect, ex- you know, in terms of w- the work, that you were doing, like what your, what your days are like, uh, the progress you're making, how is it working?
0: Yeah. So as you know, it's an incubator for mental health companies. We incubate maybe two companies a year. So very, very small scale, very high touch. And I mean, it's, it's interesting and it's an experience because incubating one company is hard. Building one company is hard. Being the executive of one company is hard. And so, you know, each of these companies is on a path and they're doing this dance of how do we build what I say in, in my heart, which is the more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible, right? What's the right. company that's going to get us there? It's going to create access to some of the things that you're talking about, environments for those conversations while recognizing how the world is set up today to handle mental health. Right. And a lot of these companies are dancing between the existing healthcare system, right? Where where are the payments? Where are the dollars? What does insurance cover? How are these insurance companies incentivized? There's some really quirky, surprising things in there. And what do we actually want to create? And how do we get there? So I think it's hard. I mean, you know a lot about this world of innovation, but how do you create the new world that you want to see while needing resources from the old one?
1: Well, you know, it reminds me of, I was, I was telling a friend yesterday that... Five or six years ago, before I went to Harvard, I started working on this education idea. I don't know if I ever told you about it, but the the simple idea was to convince tier three liberal arts colleges to replace their not so great career services offering with my offering, which was a four-year developmental program that would result in the student graduating not just with a degree, but with the capacities to live a fulfilled and meaningful life. So, yes, we would help them find a job, but as importantly, we would help them understand matters of love and money and, you know, relationships, what, whatever. And, but that process of engaging with higher education around innovation exposed this, this truth that, that it's, you know, the, th- the thing they hold on to more than anything is, is accreditation, that, that it's got to be certified, and I, I, my guess is the 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 innovators that you're working with, you know, are are hitting the same the same wall of well, that's you know that's the ideas that they have have to conform to the way the system works, right? The way mm-hmm. payments work, the way insurers, you know, how they view all this stuff. And it's just brutally hard when you collide with the behemoth, you know, to change the behemoth's mind. <laughs> and and you know, and how do you? How do you? How do you? I guess navigate those waters. I mean, for me, I ultimately I'm not ashamed to say this. I just gave up. <laughs> I'm like, mm-hmm. I, I can't do this. But how do you? Are you? Are you receiving applications? Like, how do you get to the two? How do you get to the two that you're working with today?
0: So my path. I've been in the mental health innovation space for ten years now, and so between Z and I, we end up in enough conversations that they sort of surface. Okay. We haven't been actively recruiting, though at some point, I mean, my vision for this would be we can raise a, a funds and incubate and invest in the early rounds of mental health specific companies and really have the team to help them get to where they need to go, right. including deep industry expertise around these things like payment structures. Right. We're, right now we're babies. We're not there. We're not there.
1: But you, you raised money to support it, right? Is that, mm-hmm, is that mm-hmm. is, yeah. Yeah. And, and are the ventures that you're supporting for profit or not for profit or does it matter? They're,
0: all ventures we're supporting are for profit, though, obviously we're involved in, you know, helping things that seem to line a little bit on the sides as well.
1: Right. And, and then um, in terms of your, you, you talked about how hard it is to run one company, let alone two or three. It sounds like you're actively, both of you are actively involved in the and sort of the helping to manage the, the businesses.
0: I, I would say we're a resource to the okay. founders and depending on what the company is going through, we might step in more. We might be asked to step in more or less right. right. often when they're at a really tricky juncture, like there's a, there's a timeline for fundraising or they're really missing some key hires, but they need to be moving so quickly that interviewing for those positions and you know, putting the fires out in that area is really like, we'll we'll get more involved there. Yeah. But to answer your question before about the models that people use, I think the most common is let's do something that's outside of the healthcare system. People are willing to pay privately for therapy. Let's start there, right? Right. That's a very common one. And there's this path that I've seen again and again, which is someone will start with, let's start with the private pay market and then we'll figure out insurance.
1: Uh, I'm not challenging that, but do you think that's That's probably the practical path, right?
0: I think it tends to be a path chosen by folks who don't have healthcare background. right? And it seems like something that would work, but the challenge is when you're trying to raise VC money and you're making VC sized promises about the returns that there's the possibility you will be a billion or more than a billion dollar company, you're not gonna get there if you design something for the private pay market.
1: Right, well, and then I would layer on the Ethical, you know, the obvious ethical concern about, you know, being able to support all people regardless of Mm -hmm. their private pay capacity, right?
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I hear 80% of companies say that's incredibly important to us and we're going to get to it later. (laughs) And it's very rare that they get to it, right? I mean, something the size of Headspace, I think they're giving out free memberships at this point, definitely in certain categories, but their model also supports that because it's all pre recorded. There's no human to human live interaction.
1: Yeah. Can you share with us the two ventures that you're you're incubating what what their their angles of attack are or is it confidential? I can
0: or? share, I can share, how can I share sort of the general space that we've been zeroing in on, which is there's a big opportunity when it comes to here's a treatment that we know works. We know the results are much better. It's going to be much more cost effective for everyone involved. And yet no one is getting it or very, very few people are getting it. And so that seems to be a sweet spot. Um, And if you look at like pain management and the percent of people who transition from chronic pain to opioid dependence, that's, that's a place where you can do a lot of prevention. Hmm. People don't need to develop opioid dependence and they don't need to go further down that rabbit hole, but they do, unfortunately. And if you have care that is coordinated, and you're thoughtful about how you're managing medications through the entire process. It's a huge opportunity there. And that that's true. in, in a lot of places,
1: you know, a, a real sort of related aside, my, my, I mentioned my daughter earlier, she works at a hospital here in Boston and in the cardiac unit. And she will share some of the challenges she has without naming names, obviously. And, and one of her cases was a guy who was a stonemason and he'd had five open heart surgeries over the, last 10, 15 years, which is just amazing. And um, he had to go in again and it was not, the odds were not good that it was going to work out well. But he revealed to her, his concern wasn't his, the chance of dying. His concern was being that his wife and family would find out that he was an Oxycontin addict and that he'd been dealing with chronic pain, you know, for imagine throwing stones around for a living. I, I guess I share that just to sort of underscore I think we all think mental health issues are other, you know, are sort of, are, are minority of, of the population problems. Like, right. It's a, it's a niche problem and chronic pain is a, that turns into drug addiction is a, is, is you know, very, you know, I don't know anybody that might be dealing with that. And this, when Annie told me the story, I was just like, you know, it's, it's main, this is mainstream, right? Oh yeah. All this stuff is. In mainstream.
0: Boston, Massachusetts. Yeah. You guys are leading in this. Yay, (laughs) terrible, terrible. So the kind of spaces are, so that's one, is we actually know what we need to do and it could really benefit from some coordination, from some technology in the background, from making sure that that model is implemented well and more widely available, that's one. Another is when people think about mental health companies, they're often thinking about an AI therapist or a tool to match me with a therapist or a meditation app, but there's a tremendous amount of opportunity to actually think about what's create, what creates efficiencies for the providers so that they have more time to spend on the things that really mattered. So if a provider doesn't have to do a whole bunch of billing, or if a provider doesn't have to do a whole bunch of scheduling, then that time can be reinvested in something mm-hmm. that matters and is meaningful. And mm-hmm. so there are a lot of places where the real value is in the human connection, and rather than replacing it, which is how people are predisposed to thinking about technology, you actually just use the technology to do the stuff the provider doesn't want to do anyway, and that's low value.
1: And what's interesting about that perspective is, I think, again, as a some outsider to the to the topic or the challenge, when I think about innovation in the mental health space, my bias is towards the the customer, the end user, the consumer, whatever you want to characterize that that that's where the opportunity is and what you're suggesting is, well, actually, you know, on the provider side, on the supply side, you know, either through making it more efficient, cutting out non-value added work or in the treatment methods themselves, that's really maybe where more of the, the impact potential might lie. Is up is is,
0: Yeah. And I think it's a combination of the impact potential because, you know, if you think about working with a therapist, wouldn't it be nice if they're a happy therapist If they were feeling good about their lives, if they weren't feeling burned out, if they didn't feel like they had a whole amount, a large amount of debt from graduate school.
1: Yeah.
0: Right? If they didn't feel like they needed to cover all of their own clients and they could do it in some coordinated way, if they felt like they could take a vacation, you know, if they weren't struggling with everything that comes from self-employment, they weren't struggling with, you know, the details of getting a parking permit for their office, for their clients and, you know, some neighbor dispute. Really, that's yeah. what we want is is how, I mean, we're talking about how do we make whole people? How do we make healthy people? How do we create like garden to grow people in are the vital conditions for well being? And you want your therapists and your physicians to be benefiting from that too.
1: It also that also triggers for me, this long held view that part of the problem that we have as a country and we're, it's not unique to America, but we're just, I think we're currently the poster child for it. The challenges that we're seeing unfold in our society are in large are in part a function of the limitations of what I call our human development system, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: which to me is a combination of the formal education system, you know, pre-K, 12, higher ed, whatever. And then the informal system, which actually I think carries a lot of the more of the impact and that's what happens at home. In the community in the old days in church or synagogue like and how the child's guardians and stewards and parents and whatever come together to develop them you know and to develop not not just their sort of functional capacities but their their human capacities their spiritual capacities and I really do worry that you know not only have we underfunded our formal education system and teachers are put us, you know, sort of put asunder by it all. But the informal system is also, I think, really, really suffered for a variety of reasons over the last twenty or thirty years. Yeah. So it's a sort of this macro view of, you know, in order to improve our mental health collectively, don't we have to start looking more explicitly at the source of us? Mm-hmm. You know, I think about my own issues, my own darkness, which really came sort of crashing down on me when I was 37, I'm not putting it all on my upbringing, but I, I'd certainly say a fair amount was derivative of the things I didn't get. So, I, you know, anyway, it's just, uh,
0: yeah, I agree with everything that you're sharing. I think that's incredibly important. And there's so many ways to think about that, right? So one is what are we funding? How are we supporting parents or people who are interacting with the next generation? What are our informal spaces look like? And then there's, you know, particular things like technology or social media or the pressure that's on a lot of kids yeah. and things that are really coming, I think, into view very clearly right now that have been happening for a long time around what are the values in our society? Like, does everyone have a shot at well-being? Are people being systematically locked out of that? And what does it mean to be, you know, there's a great Martin Luther King quote around him wanting to stay maladjusted to the areas of society that are detrimental to humans. Yeah, like he does not want to become adjusted to racism or bigotry or violence. Right, right. And in some ways, like what I hear a lot from teenagers is they have a challenging time because we're telling them on the one hand that there's essentially no real forceful collective action when it comes to curbing carbon emissions, right? right. And so they're learning, that they might be one of the likely, I guess, depending on who you talk to, what perspective, these teenagers are likely going to be one of the last generations on this planet. And yet we're telling them to have hope and we're telling them not to be anxious. And that anxiety is a medical issue that you can treat with medication. And that's, you know, many generations have had their fear that, you know, something terrible would happen, whether it's world wars. I think it, it often involves military conflict. I used to be afraid as a kid of, you know, at some point the sun We'll run out of energy and then we'll all die, but that's really, really, really far ways off. I didn't blow up. I think about that all the time. (laughs) Yeah, but we have a much more urgent one now. And so, how do we think about what is fundamentally a mental health problem, like anxiety, and should be addressed through the tools that we have in mental health versus a totally healthy reaction to a society that's challenged, a planet that's challenged, a family that's challenged, and. We can use the tools from mental health to help people cope with that anxiety. But I think we have to also remember to solve, to find the root causes of the anxiety and work towards those.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, t- two, two responses. You know, one is, I said recently that COVID is, has both revealed and is reminding a, a percentage of the population that has operated under the belief that everything is solvable, everything is surmountable, that we shall never suffer. I'm not saying that's the whole population, I'm saying it's a percentage of the population. It's underscored that that is not actually true. And that's, you know, that that is a mind-bending proposition, I think, for a lot, for, for a lot of people. The other thing I want to mention is, is when you're talking about, you know, sort of our society not having a clear definition of the values that we sort of hold on to outside of maybe the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution or something. Coincidentally, I, I did a solo podcast talk earlier today, or I recorded it, and it was my first one where I just riffed. I just, the, the other ones I've done over the last couple of weeks have just been, you know, posts that I've written, basically scripts, and so I would read them, and they're they're fine. But today, I did I did a completely spontaneous talk on the power of intention, believing that in every aspect of our lives there's insufficient articulation of what it is we are after exactly whether the context is an individual context a family context a partner context a company context a startup context a, a country you know and i talk specifically about the united states and 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 ask the question you know what is our intention what do we seek for our society how do we define our collective progress and I think what blows me away—I mean, it's almost as scary as the sun going out of going out of business—is we don't have answers to that question.
0: We don't even know who the we is. No,
1: we don't know who the we. Well, I think we think the we look like oh, the we doesn't look like you know. Yeah, I, no, we don't. We we the, the, you know the lack of—I'll uh, call it rigor—is one of my other big bugaboos. Is just the gross lack of rigor in so many aspects of of life. Around who, how, what, you know, what is the outcome? How do we measure? You know, the only measure we have as a country is, pardon my French, fucking GDP. (laughs) You know, meanwhile, hundreds of thousands of people are are collapsing, you know, are, are are massive pain are are dying. Needlessly, are you know in terrible places, and you know we hold up GDP as the gauge of a healthy country. And you're like what? Anyway, I want to be respectful of your time, and I I just love to maybe transition, or not transition, for segue to um, your view on COVID. You know the the question I get asked a lot, which I'm going to ask you, is like what? So what do you think? What do you think the impact is in real, like right now? In the world uh, there's a lot of talk about mental health there's a lot of talk about people struggling i haven't seen a lot of data i've seen a lot of talk and then when we get out of this presumably we get out of this you know how do you think we should respond you know is it you know do more of what effect is doing is it is it the more of us need to take responsibility just i'd love to, i'd love just sort of how you think about the impact of this pandemic on humanity
0: i think there are Many aspects to this. What we know from psychology is it's helpful to tell people to be concerned, but then you need to give them specifics. What can you do? And the combination of those two things allows them to take the right action. If you only tell them to be concerned, but you don't tell them what they can do, you're going to create a lot of anxiety. And one of the challenges that we've had as a country at every level has been How concerned should we be? What number should we really be looking at? And what do I need to do differently? As a human, someone who owns hypothetically a hair salon or a restaurant, as an employer, and the lack of clear communication around what is known, what needs to be aggressively tracked, and what you can do today. And then when it's adjusted, basic reason as to why it's been adjusted is it Massive gap that is creating a tremendous amount of additional unnecessary anxiety and distress. Both because people are sitting with all of this extra anxiety, and also because it's becoming tension between family members, between friend groups, people who are getting information from different sources. I'm seeing a lot of this in my own communities where some people are being extremely careful, some people are being less careful. And there's a lot of tension because it's something that you're not just affecting yourself, but you're affecting the people around you. So that would kind of be my number one. Right. I think my number two is this is really going to be a marathon. In many cases, people are thinking it's a sprint. We'll get a vaccine, you know, in a month, in two months, they can reschedule my flight. I think we're going to be in this for a while. I think Fauci just said he doesn't expect a vaccine until the end of next year. And even then, he's optimistic. He didn't say we would have it. I think there are six phase two trials right now, which is pretty good. There's a ton of work going into it. But I guess for me, what's been the most helpful is finding credible sources of information, which in my case are people, because I have access to people who are really working on this stuff. And then understanding from them when things change. And what I've actually done to my parents are my dad's 74, and I I was at Davos, and then I was in Milan right before. COVID happened. So I got back to the US on February 9th, which was around the same time that Milan started having very severe issues with COVID. And it felt like it was my role to convince my parents to take this seriously. They live in San Francisco, it's an urban area, high density, they're a little older. And it was challenging because for about a month, they thought I was being paranoid and that they were completely safe because no one was telling them to be careful and nobody was telling them not to travel. And eventually what I came up with is a system for them where they have a sort of coronavirus allowance. And they get a certain number of points. And if my mom, she has a thing where she likes to buy Starbucks coffee from Costco and then go to Starbucks and have them grind the bag when she's ready for ground coffee. It's just, it's one of her quirks. It's something she likes. So it goes, right? We all have our thing. And she really wanted, she had this big bag of coffee beans and she really wanted to go to Starbucks to have them grind it for her you know, in the early days of COVID. And my dad and I both thought this was ridiculous, right? But once we created this, you have, you have a certain number of points. This is how many points each thing uses. Like, how do you it's want like to weight watchers allowing?
1: or something like everything? Exactly. Does. She loves weight watchers
0: too. She'll hate that I said that. But yeah, she loves weight watchers. So that, I think that's sort of a way, like we need practical ways of, of making these decisions.
1: How many points was that? Do you remember? Is that a lot of points? Who gets to be the arbiter of the points?
0: As their child who was already pushing about as hard as I could on them taking it seriously, I left the how many points they get and what each thing costs to them. Yeah. So my dad's now reframed it for my mom. I guess my mom's the one who needs this. And my dad's frame is, he attributes it to me, but it's really his frame. There's a hierarchy of desires. And what's at the top of your hierarchy of desires? Like, Do you want to go see your 94-year-old mom and have a visit with her? Or do you want to go to Starbucks and have a this- Bag of coffee grounds. That's so funny. You can pick.
1: That's so funny. So if it is a marathon, what can we each do to help each other keep running and not collapse in the middle of the road?
0: Yeah. So I think there's, there's a skill from DBT called radical acceptance. Marsha Linehan is one of my personal heroes. I think she's phenomenal. And she has a skill called radical acceptance, which is essentially, how do you accept that something is the case? just not to say you have to feel good about it. You don't have to accept it's always going to be that way, but you accept that it happened or that it is. And I think that's a skill we could all be practicing because we are where we are and we need to accept where we are. Right. And then we can make decisions from a place of acceptance. Right. But waking up in the morning and thinking, ah, this is terrible. I can't do another day of this. Slamming your head into the wall every single day for the next, I don't even want to say how many months. Not going to be helpful.
1: Yeah, I wrote a uh, a piece about a month ago, just like a little, you know, one page, two page thing, titled "From Pull to Push."
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the I did I send it to you?
0: I think I read it. Was it not on your blueberry? It was on
1: my blueberry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's awesome. And for the audience, the gist of it is, you know, with COVID, all the pull in our life, or much of it, disappeared. Like all the seductions, all the demands, all the clamoring to go out, do this, do that, all of a sudden doesn't exist anymore. And so we have to replace the pull with push, the idea of of call it self-creation, proactivity. You know, life is now for many of us, not certainly not all of us, for many of us now, a blank piece of paper. And so what do we do with that piece of paper? And What was most interesting about publishing the piece was the reaction I got, which was a combination of some percentage of people saying that's exactly right. And I love this new push world. I love being more in command and not simply responding to all these seductions. And then another percentage of people saying, I can't take it. Mm -hmm. I can't take the lack of pull. I can't take the lack of, 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 of things, you know, coming at me and the and the blank piece of paper just scares the hell out of me Mm -hmm. and I literally had a guy call me most of the reaction was via email or or linkedin or whatever but I had a guy call me almost in desperation he's like how do I do this like how do I transition in terms of my modalities from this full up existence to this in a in a way empty existence And, and you know, and uh, yeah. I think, I, I guess to echo what you just said, you know, I, I, and I said, you know, maybe there's something in the seven stages of grief, which ultimately I think ends in acceptance, right? And and maybe mm-hmm. this idea of radical acceptance is where we all have to, we all have to head that this is in fact a marathon and, you know, there's, there's no way you can sort of, you can't do a Rosie Ruiz on it. You just got to keep plotting forward, right?
0: Yeah. I think you accept what it is as best you can that can be extremely challenging it's a skill you can google it there's worksheets you can get there and then you think about what is it that i really want to be doing right now and you get to the root of what that desire is or what that need is and is there another way that you can be meeting that and even though it's i mean there are many people for whom this period is extremely painful for so many reasons and then there are many people who are really struggling with exactly what you're talking about around it's a forced reset it's a forced moratorium there are people many of whom we know and interact with through work and on a daily basis whose lives have been built around the next goal and achieving success and what we often find as i'm sure you've seen as well as i have is at some point even without covid one realizes that David Brooks has a great way of talking about this, where he talks about what's on your resume versus what's in your obituary. Mm. And if you're pursuing the resume constantly and achieving great success, at some point you realize it might be in midlife, it might be around a health scare, probably around something you can't control, maybe for whatever reason your company goes bankrupt, something like that. You realize that you've been building something that isn't actually aligned with your core existence, values, all these deform or meaningful identity questions, I see you nodding. Yeah. Right.
1: Oh my God.
0: I think what COVID is providing is a communal way of experiencing that sooner for many people.
1: Right. Forced.
0: Yeah. And Forced. some of them may hit it as hard as they would if they got to that point themselves. Some of them might hit it more gently. But what's unique about this experience is we're all going through it together. And so there's much less stigma about, wow, I'm really having a hard time. Wow, I'm really feeling anxious. Wow, I had a lot of trouble sleeping. Wow, I haven't eaten anything but XYZ foods in whatever period of time. And right. we can talk about it.
1: Well, and to, and to throw into that, I, I've had more people tell me that they love me in the last two months. You know, like it's there's no stigma in actually sh- showing somebody that you care mightily yeah. about them, you know? It, it was, and it's terrible that there, sh- there was stigma before. There's actually a piece in Sunday's Times last weekend that was like, I don't know if you saw it, but it was in the Sunday Style section that had 30 little or 20 little vignettes of how people's lives have been impacted by COVID, you know, very personal. And the one that, two that stuck with me, one was a guy, 20-year-old with a 10-year-old brother who the, the was, quote, the quote was, we have cried more. And hugged more in the last two months than we did in the prior 10 years. Yeah. I just and I just like love that. And then the other one, which is a little less positive, was a woman saying, uh, it's pretty clear that we're not gonna be together after this is over.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But
1: you know, it forces it forces intimacy, it forces honesty. Like you can't yeah. in a weird way, you can't hide, right?
0: Yeah, and at its core it's about death it's oh, about yeah life, and it's about the preservation of life yeah we're going as individuals and as society to extreme measures to protect life and it's a natural question then what why are why is life so valuable what is it about my life that I really want to save that I really want to be experiencing like what makes my life worth living and how can I connect with those things, even in this circumstance where you have to be extra careful. And yeah. so well, for a lot of people, when they get there, it's around connection to other humans. It's around intimacy. It's around vulnerability. It's around creation. For some people, you know, it can still be distraction, yeah. running from distraction to distraction. It's still a path. I mean, there are people who are doing like 18 online yoga classes and zoom birthday parties every day.
1: I was doing bar. Who are
0: doing, You know, they're speaking at like 10 national webinars every day. You can still choose that.
1: Right. I was, Kate and I were doing bar for a couple months, bouncing around the the living room, but it (laughs) didn't really work for me. But the other other thing is all sort of brings up in my, my book, This Is It, I talk about, this is sort of your point about David Brooks' piece. That your life is a movie to be made, right? And so, at the, you know, if, if at the end of your life you're walking down the street and you see a movie theater, assuming they have movie theaters, and it, the title of the movie playing is Your Life, and you walk into the movie theater mm-hmm. and you sit down and you watch the two and a half hour movie of your life, the question is, how do you feel at the end? You know, and, and if, if your life is a resume, it's likely that the, the screenplay isn't going to be so great, right? Mm-hmm that's only one dimension of a life Mm -hmm. and um so using this time potentially to begin thinking differently about the screenplay you want to write for the future yeah anyway i need to be i need to be respectful of your time i will be respectful of your time and Mm -hmm. just close by thanking you and telling you i love you and as i said at the beginning we, we you know sarah and i don't Know each other all that well, but I think we know each other pretty darn well. And I think we generally care about each other. And I'm so appreciative of you, of you, and of you making the time for me and making time for Insert Human. And I'd love to talk to you forever, pretty much.
0: We can do it. Okay. We have nothing but time now.
1: We have nothing but time. All right. I'll let you go and then I'll reconnect soon. And I would love to just keep talking about all sorts of stuff.
0: Sounds good. Thanks for having me on the show.
1: Thanks for listening today. If you're in search of more opportunities to realize positive change in your life or work, and you find what I have to say helpful, you can always subscribe to my show. Check out one of my new salons. that are weekly virtual gatherings of like-minded folks. You can read some of my writings or just listen to one of the talks that I've given around the world over the last couple of years. And you can do it all at chriscolbert.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for my ongoing email updates. When you do, you'll receive a free copy of the first chapter of my about to be published book, Technology is Dead. Again, it's all available at chriscolbert.com. Thanks again for listening today. and I look forward to connecting more in the days ahead.